I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of First Lady and Friends, uh, we have a new friend. Her name is Luna Bonori. We met several months ago, and I've just had such a connection to her. She shared her faith with me, as well as all the work that she's been doing um, at the Utah Muslim Civic League, as well as in our refugee communities. Uh, Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. We are absolutely, I, I'm so excited about this uh, this episode. We have a really cool friend of mine um, that I met actually for the first time in in a place I'd never been. Um, and it, it was really cool. It was in a mosque and uh, I was participating in a, a worship service that I had never experienced before. And Luna, Luna Bonori, she is here and you were so kind and you really sat down with me and had a, such a cool conversation about our our differences, our similarities, mostly similarities between our faiths and, and just really taught me a lot. And so I'm so excited to have you here on the program. Thank you. And it was an honor to meet you and your husband when you were on your campaign trail and one of the stops you made was our faith space, uh, Khadija Mosque in West Valley, uh, which is the first and only uh, architected mosque in the state of Utah for a long time. Somebody asked me that. I said, "Is it?" And, and it's not the only, though, no, right? No. Yeah. So how many? How many are there in Utah? Right now we have thirteen. And okay. then we have a, a what what we call a musalla, which is like just space for prayer uh, out in St. George. Oh, okay. So okay. 14 in the state, in a way. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's, first of all, let's go back. Let's talk about um, you. Let's talk about uh, your background, you, where you where you were born, where you were raised. Um, where Just tell me a little bit about your story. Sure. So I was born in Peshawar, Pakistan, which is a bordering town between... Um, I guess Pakistan and Afghanistan, and my parents were highly, highly educated in terms of they both uh, did their um, doctorates in France in early 1970s, and that's why my name is Luna. It has nothing to do with the Muslim background or culture or anything. It was just my parents' French connection um, that I like to say. Um, They met while doing their doctorate and then decided to pursue scientific research in Pakistan. And so they were uh, in Peshawar leading an institute which did a lot of research around the flora and fauna and uh, uh, created uh, libraries and so on. Um, And then shortly thereafter, my father was inducted in the diplomatic service for Pakistan. So we moved to the capital, Islamabad, and right afterwards, my father was posted to Iran which was what we call at that time the rocking Iran, uh, Tehran. It was the time of the Shahs, and it was one of the party places of East. Um, As soon as we arrived, uh, that's when the revolution 
1979 occurred. So we saw quite literally the miniskirts changing into black abayas. We were not allowed to go to school. We were cooped up in our room. Um, I have four siblings, so all of us together, um, you know, witnessed that entire um, transformation. And because the diplomatic ties were, um, I guess, I don't know the exact term as to if they were terminated or not. As a child, what I remember is my father was told to report to somebody in England and we had to leave Iran in the darkness and get to England through public transport. So for us, that was a lot of fun going through former Yugoslavia and other states and making it there. And then he was asked to go back and hand over his charge in the embassy in Iran. So we traveled back to Iran and we decided to go back to Pakistan from there. And that's exactly when the Afghan war, the first Soviet-Afghan war in 1980s, uh, broke out. And so all the routes were closed and we had to figure out how to get back home. So it took us about six weeks of traveling through deserts and through, I believe, the route that takes you into Quetta, which is another part of Pakistan. And that this whole experience kind of gave me the layout, the people, uh, and everything, not of Afghanistan, but more of Iran and Pakistan. And thereafter, uh, my father passed away very young, and so I was raised uh, by my mother, who's highly educated in uh, working for a scientific institute in Pakistan. And I think um, I never really saw a domestic, um, you know, Eastern woman uh, raising me. So my ideology from the beginning was more of emancipation, being opinionated and being okay with it. Um, I did see my mother work through a very patriarchal system and raising four kids. Um, my siblings are all based in U.S., mostly in Texas, and they keep wondering why I would choose to stay away, and especially when my kids were young. They were like, you want to keep them away from family, but they really are my backbone, each one of them, and I miss and adore them. I hope they will listen to this podcast just because of that, <laughs> that I mentioned them. Um, um, I also got married, I would say, comparatively at a young age. And my husband had studied in U.S. and gone back um, to Pakistan to work there. His family is also from Peshawar, so they're uh, what we refer to as Pashtuns, Pashto-speaking um, uh, family he, there are four uh, brothers and two sisters, and the all these four men from being uh, from such a you know uh, once again patriarchal society, mm. they are the biggest feminists that I've come across my life. So once again, I was blessed to have this entire uh, you know family and structure in which I was able to explore a lot of my own identities, which. As they say, with seasons in life, changed quite a bit over a period of time. So I uh, went to law school uh, and wanted to compete for the competitive examination that we take in Pakistan to be inducted in the Foreign Service. Uh, the idea was that I wanted to travel the world, and this was the shortest route that I could find. But right at that time, I also got married and um, did not take the exam, but followed the law path for a bit. It was a very short-lived path because, um, once again, practicing uh, 
law in Pakistan for women was mostly in the corporate sector. And I could not do public you know, work or any such thing. I tried and learned a lot of lessons and basically realized that this is not the space I could be at that time. And corporate law was too uh, enclosed of an environment for me. So I stepped out and eventually uh, was inducted into the UN system and worked for UNDP, United Nations Development Program, and was part of establishing the first gender unit after the first women's Beijing conference in Pakistan. And what we did in that gender um, uh, unit was roll out programs um, around intersections of Pakistani women around um, media, how uh, women were portrayed in the media. Um, we worked around uh, business microloans and, uh, you know, that kind of thing for women. We did transportation issues and so on. Once again, that work allowed me to travel extensively within Pakistan and understand from different perspectives the socioeconomic divide and how that affects your choices in life and um, all of that. And um, we immigrated to U.S. around... 1999. And it was a decision mostly because of uh, career choices that I wanted to make further on. And my husband, um, having studied here, also wanted to come back here. Um, I started as the executive director for uh, an organization called Human Development of North America. Um, Once again, it was a project that was led by a lot of expats, benefiting um, their home countries, and in this case, specifically Pakistan. Um, and the Human Development Project uh, uh, it was based on um, the Human Development Index. So they would not only build schools, but whichever community that they worked in, they would look at a holistic model and provide for educate not only education, but health, economic development, and take care of the entire community, not just one single pathway. Mm. Wow. So after you, you came to the U.S. in 1999, and you ended up where? In Chicago. Okay. Which That's is good. where uh, the um, uh, Office of uh, HDF, Human Development Foundation, was. So I started there. And incidentally, I traveled in the seventh month of uh, my pregnancy, and I was carrying twins. Of your first pregnancy. Is that your first? Oh, so you got twins right off the bat. (laughs) A boy and a girl. It doesn't get better than that. (laughs) And I thought I was done, but somebody else had other plans. And (laughs) I ended up with another son within 13 months. Um, Wow. Yeah, it was hard. And Moving to Chicago was once again, you know, I'd never lived in snow. I'd Mm. never, you know, driven in snow. I didn't know how to, you know, winterize or, for that matter, layer up and so on. And (laughs) I arrived in January and looked around with two infants, you know. It's like I wasn't sure if I could survive that. I did, and that's why a lot of people, while in Utah, during winter, keep asking me, aren't you cold? Why aren't you wearing your jacket? Like my bones are uh, <laughs> used to much uh, deeper cold. <laughs> and, you know, that habit hasn't gone away. 
Yeah, the the humid cold. Oh my God! Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I came to Utah. I, uh, as far as I could recall, is um, around 2013, end of 2013, um, wanting to stay here just for six months for a consulting project. But uh, the kids absolutely loved their environment, and we came from a suburb of Chicago where life is very manicured. And over here, we lived on the East Bench. Um, my kids were going to a public school, which had two uh, shelters, as well as you know the East Side yeah. uh, residents feeding in. So the economic diversity was shocking to them, if mm. you would believe it. Um, the, the I think Salt Lake was the first time they actually saw unhoused population. Um, and I know you would compare that to Chicago. But we lived in the suburbs, which is a very different country within Chicago. Yes, you never yeah. really go to the west side, and so on. Wow. Um, so, for us, uh, you know, in realizing, you know, the the learning the kid had, a kid had in in you know, uh, once again in their environment and so on, was very. Um, it was a different experience, and then. They basically told us they did not want to leave, that people in Utah are nicer than in Chicago. Mm. Well, that makes me feel good. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And, and it is the truth. We also believe that. It, mm. You know, people have time for each other, for families here. Um, and especially when the kids were younger, we created a great support system. Mm. Have any of your kids been back to Pakistan? Have no. they? Oh, they haven't? No. Unfortunately, and it is one of my biggest regrets because Pakistan is such a integral part of my work, integrity, everything. And, you know, a small story. Uh, in Chicago, a lot of my work was around um, expat community and, you know, uh, issues of Pakistan and development and so on. Um, and I would constantly get into situations where I was fundraising for, uh, you know, projects back home. And so one of the time uh, I was helping um, uh, um, organize a conference, which was first time of its kind. So it meant a couple of sleepless nights and so on and so forth. So I wasn't cooking much and I wasn't doing much. And so on my third consecutive night of taking kids to McDonald's to pick up a ready meal, <laughs> my youngest son rolled down the uh, window and asked uh, everyone, uh, the drive through person, if they had dal and chawal, which is rice and lentils, which is what we have. And then he turned around very disappointed when he was told, no, they don't have dal chawal. And he said, mom, can you stop helping you know, kids in Pakistan and help your own kids too. Oh. <laughs> they didn't have the understanding. It was a term for them, have never having never witnessed, yeah. you know, Pakistani kids and as to why did they need help. Mm. The idea that, you know, kids don't get their basics uh, in third world countries and even in this country many times, that idea was so alien to them. And that was one of the factors when um, I came to Salt Lake to let them experience, you know, real life mm. and real situations. That's so, that's incredible. And I think um, so powerful. I, I think my kids can relate the last few months um, that I've been told, why are you not cooking dinner anymore? <laughs> so right. I think uh, I can, I think my kids can very much relate to that, but I, I love the idea that, you know, 
our our children sometimes if we are not um specifically teaching things mm-hmm. or letting them experience things um they can just be abstract concepts instead of uh real life which i think is a powerful thing and i think uh, actually when they grow up or are older that concept becomes more magnified for their own life experiences because uh, you know our kids when we refer to them as third culture kids they go through that pain of not understanding as to why are they not as the labels we give them as pakistani american or uh, you know uh, arab american and so on and that they cannot embody the the full american experience either because there's you know the belonging is different mm. so how does one as a parent how do we bridge that yeah. i don't really have the answer but i know that i've gone through that journey again and again with my kids and still do still do mm. wow well we want to continue this conversation and talk more about your work at the utah muslim civic league uh, we'll be right back i'm dave colley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are here with Luna Banori. She is a friend of mine and and just a, a person that has, has taught me so much. I've learned so much from you, Luna, and, and especially as we talk about our, our different faiths. Um, you, you've been working in the Utah Muslim Civic League since you've been here in Utah. Um, talk a little bit about what what that is and maybe what what their mission is. Absolutely. And uh, Abby, I actually learned from you. My ears are burning. Thank you for the compliment. Um, Utah Muslim Civic League actually started about uh, two and a half years ago, um, and I moved here prior to that. So my experience coming into Utah as a Muslim woman um, was, I would say, a, a bit curious. In Chicago, it's not very uncommon for moms to get involved with schools. Um, in fact, there are more um, moms involved than they can they need. So, uh, believe it or not, my school had a waiting list for volunteers. That is interesting. Exactly, and, and we're we're the we're the number one volunteer state in the country. So that really shocks me. And it's also <laughs> kind of a close, uh, at least in the school that we were in. You weren't really allowed to just walk in. You had to be approved. Okay. Right? So, oh, I see. I see. Okay. <laughs> but even then, they, I mean, you can't, could not ignore the number of women. So my first instinct when I came here was to get involved in my uh, kids' school. And, you know, the first PTA meeting, um, what I didn't understand was there were home-cooked uh, cookies and other baked goods. And then somebody made a comment about how they went to some other meeting and people had brought Costco snacks and how oh my. <laughs> and I for a second it took me a second to process that and understand that oh 
that was a diss. That this was not <laughs> supposed to be because in once again in Chicago, I mean, you barely get food at these meetings. It, it's you know, it's a very fast paced and different, different sort of uh, atmosphere. So, um, what I also understood was folks around me offered help, help that I could not understand that I needed. Mm. So their conversation would slow down when they were speaking to me. If they asked me to volunteer to bring anything, they would explain which brands or what pirate booty meant. <laughs> and it took me once again a moment to understand um, the lack of, and this is a very, become a very common term to use, but I truly mean it in the pure sense, lack of diversity, mm-hmm. um, you know, and not only in terms of color, but in terms of economic uh, diversity as mm-hmm. well. So uh, the population, uh, Muslim population in Utah is largely different uh, from other states. Once again, it's uh, economic um, sort of imprint. So that moment, I realized that I needed to show um, what an empowered Muslim woman could potentially look like. Mm -hmm. And that that became sort of my calling to get involved in places where there were not, there were women who were in a position to give, not only just take. So in terms of services, in terms of um, opinions, in terms of thought processes. So I started kind of getting involved and sort of Pakistan from my identity started getting erased because if you don't know what a Muslim is, why would you care if um, you are from which Muslim country? It is a larger Muslim identity that still needs understanding here in Utah. So most of my work became about being a Muslim woman in here. Um, and so in that, along that process, as I um, participated in different mosques and different activities, I also saw the lack of an organized way to speak on behalf of the community. So Utah Muslim Civic League was formed so we could have one platform through which we could not only educate our elected officials about us, but also inform our own people how does the electoral process works? How do you raise voice for your issues? And what are the places where you can uh, influence policy that affects us? Um, I am one of the co-founders and at the moment also the executive director. And I do have a very strong, committed group of people behind me uh, who I'm very lucky to work with. Um, We are very young, but I feel like We've made a mark. A lot of people do know about us. And it's also been because we've been working nonstop, absolutely nonstop. And whereas we started as a civic engagement organization, I think the pandemic completely made us pivot. Because when you talk about civic engagement, it probably can only come when your stomach is full and you're not worried about your job tomorrow. And the pandemic also as we know, highlighted a lot of um, issues of, uh, you know, um, disparities around health, disparities around economic, you know, outreach and so on. So a lot of uh, UMCL's work pivoted and we started looking and helping community in ways where we could provide resources or um, direct resources to different organizations within the Muslim community. And as a once again, as a Muslim woman, it was very important for me 
to be a part of um part of be be it's it, it it's not understood as such but be part of the politics mm-hmm. um i'm not interested in public office or running for it but what i am interested is making public officials understand what we are about yeah. so in in the muslim community a uh, majority of women participate in service projects and so on but leadership positions um are not occupied by women yes that became important to me for our younger generation to model and try to create pathways for them um and in no way i claim to be a leader i just claim to be a connector in this entire ecosystem that we've built where we provide opportunities for young folks to find their passion in terms of public office or um uh, policy analysis um and so on so forth yeah yeah oh i th- i think it's it's so important and and you you highlighted um many of those things that we've been talking about um post you know we hope to be able to say post pandemic at some point but you know those inequities and, and things that were going on but you also talk a little bit about the the understanding between our our faiths and and you know there is a dominant faith and a dominant uh, faith culture in in the state of Utah and you know coming into this situation or this place where you've had to navigate that dominant you've you you grew up in Pakistan where there was a dominant and you were part of the dominant religion and the t- dominant culture and now you've come to be in Utah where there is a different dominant culture and dominant religion and you're finding your way in that let's let's talk a little bit about the the interfaith communities in Utah and how they've been working together and you had an experience at BYU that that we should talk about absolutely so um uh, coming in in Utah actually one of the organized activities that I got involved was uh, the interfaith uh, round table in the beginning and I was very lucky at that time the parliament of world religions conference was coming to Salt Lake City so I got to be part of the executive team putting that entire uh, conference in place and once again it exposed me to anybody and everybody around interfaith in Utah um and as for my experience with the dominant faith here um in chicago you don't really encounter one faith there's it, the diversity is large enough but over here the first um feeling that you that i received and my family received was of warmth was of you belong here and you know you're loved for whoever and whatever you are and my kids thoroughly enjoyed going to the local temple making friends there and so on um some of it changed with the politics and the election of 2016 um and it um sort of made you think about if the feelings of belonging and love that we received it if they were actually true mm-hmm. if that we were actually accepted or not and that was also the time where my boys were especially going through puberty so then they were not young cute kids now they were growing brown boys so that entire piece um is something different but my initial sort of uh, um work with the interfaith i enjoyed the human connections and the respect that existed but there was this need in me 
for our interfaith leaders to speak more about the issues that affected the community. Um, I got almost numb hearing about the commonalities that we mm. had because what if we didn't agree and what if we were different? I wanted to know how to handle that. I wanted to know that if, you know, how do I respect, not tolerate the differences? And I wanted to teach that to my kids as well. So I sort of took a step away from interfaith work to focus on, you know, understanding how does uh, anti-racist framework exist around us? How can we build that further and so on? But recently, uh, I have become involved with another uh, group, which is called United Today, Stronger Tomorrow, and it is a coalition of faith and civic leaders within Utah who want to take up uh, lobbying and advocacy on behalf of the, that community. Mm. And we've had some amazing success because we can talk about housing issue as a Jewish person. I can speak about it as a Muslim person, how it affects me and our population. And then we can speak to our elected officials saying, that these issues affect us differently and that they affect our communities in ways which may not be common with others mm -hmm. and advocate at a very laser-focused way. Mm -hmm. So um, I think for me the key piece is action. Uh, within interfaith work, um, when it's action-oriented, I feel more excited and committed to it and I am hoping through UTSD that we will be able to accomplish a lot of policy changes and policy, uh, not only changes, but uh, additional policy that would uh, affect the communities of color, um, different faith groups, um, and so on. Mm. I'm very excited about them. Yeah. And so talk about the there was there was an organization or, or a symposium that happened at BYU where yes. you met and 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 had an experience with um, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, Elder Gong and Elder Bednar. Talk Thank a little you. bit about what happened there. Thank you for reminding me. So yeah. we are quite literally fresh off that interaction. BYU organized a conference, a two day conference, a conference around Islam, and they brought in sixteen wonderful scholars from all across um, the country, and we had a great time even as Muslims trying to understand contemporary issues in Islam and Sharia and Sunni and Muslim uh, feminism, so on. But one of the highlights of that event was the closing session which um, in which the uh, Latter-day Saint leadership spoke about different things that are common between Muslims and um, Latter-day Saints, but they spoke about it in a way that evoked faith in an actionable manner. So not only did they identify those things, they also made call on the larger Latter-day Saints a community across the world to not partake in any uh, harsh words or in any um, generalization of Muslim faith uh, because of the commonalities we held. And they spoke about how uh, the Latter-day Saint faith across the globe is misunderstood and is stereotyped. 
And from that place, they asked uh, everyone not to partake in that uh, this kind of rhetoric. They also spoke about the immense work that's happening in BYU around text translations. Uh, they're coming out with a pamphlet, which doesn't look like a pamphlet. It looks like a book to me around the Muslim faith and the main tenets to inform public about uh, you know, who are Muslims and how do they practice faith and what are the main tenets for a dominant faith? Yes, it's a dominant faith in Utah, but it is it does have a global presence for them to undertake another faith and educate the whole world. It is extremely, um, you know, evokes respect and commands for us as Muslims to reciprocate in ways you know, we worldwide are billion plus at the moment. So it's almost like providing us a roadmap of how we should be looking at, you know, different faiths and looking at the commonality, the common denominator and elevating our own spiritual lives. I love that. And I, you know, like I said, I loved the time you and I spent together um, worshiping in, in the mosque and um, I, I just learned so much, but I love what you said about not just, not just always, we always talk about finding our commonalities, which I think is really important. Um, but we are going to have differences. Clearly we're going to have differences and not just tolerating that. What you said is don't just tolerate that, but respect that, love that, love our differences and appreciate them. I love that. And, and how do we do that? How do we teach that? How do we teach that to our children? How do we teach that to the broader communities here in Utah? That's a really tough question. <laughs> and I mean, I wish there was a simpler process to explain it. I think number one and the most important thing to understand is if you don't know uh, the fear of unknown, mm. the first and the foremost part for me always is expose myself and children to the unknown and creating those personal bonds, creating that connection um, and seeing each other as humans first, um, that itself brings the barrier down a few notches. And then I think respect, once again, it's almost like an acquired taste. Mm -hmm. You have to practice it. You have to learn to deal with your emotions and also that knee-jerk reaction that our biases kind of bring out, we have to learn. We have to understand the power of words and we have to choose our words carefully with each other. Mm -hmm. Those are a few of the things that come to my mind, but if you find the right way, <laughs> let me know. Okay. I no, might trademark I think, it. <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think that's exactly right. And for me, it's been getting proximate. And I say this word a lot, but it's getting proximate to somebody that has a different story than I do. And um, just also for me, it's being curious um, rather than fearful, always be curious. And that's just I've, I've tried to teach my kids to to have a curiosity for somebody that maybe has a different experience that, uh, you know, a different religion, a different you know life, a different culture. And I, I just think when you're curious Oh, the world just opens up to you, and I think it's beautiful. And if we dispel the fear, 
Um, like you said of the unknown, I think that's perfect. Um, I want to take a break, but come back and talk about, um, what you're seeing with our refugee community. We'll, we'll be right back. We're back here with Luna Banuri. Let's get into this conversation. I have had so many people asking me, uh, what can I do to help with our refugee community and specifically recently about the refugees that are coming here from Afghanistan. Um, we are being told that we are receiving upwards of seven, 700 plus um, Afghani refugees. Um, first of all, let's talk. I think there's we talk about misconceptions and we talk about misinformation. Let's break some of those down a little bit about the process of being a refugee. And it may be, and, and maybe you know, it may be a little different for our Afghani situation for these specific 700 plus that will be coming, maybe slightly different from the regular refugee process. But I think there's, when I learned about it, I was shocked. I had no idea the process that refugees go through to, to get to the United States. Thank you for the, you know, asking this question. And let me also qualify by saying that I am not a refugee specialist. I don't belong to any of the resettlement, wonderful resettlement agencies that we have in the state. I, uh, my perspective is from a community-based organization, um, but it is also personal because um, back in Pakistan, in Peshawar, where I was born, um, ever since I can recall, um, when the war, first war broke out and I was a child, I have seen the influx of refugee, the way our lives changed. My childhood friends have been refugees who were there for three months and then disappeared after three months. And it, it's not a setup like U.S. where they would come in and be processed through any resettlement agencies. They came in and lived in white tents erected in ground. Um, you know, some of the family members were still fighting with the Mujahideen. You know, men were brought in injured because we live hours away from the border. Um, so it, it is very personal. And in no way the information that I provide can ha, has any legal or even, you know, uh, administrative uh, process and so on. But you know, it's almost like you can't, cannot speak about religion or refugees in a singular. Mm -hmm. We just have to be more discerning. We have to understand the politics. We have to understand that within these two identities, there are others present, that there is a lot of nuances that are present. Um, for us, it was a matter of pride when we saw your husband sending a letter to President Biden that day, I wanted to climb up on the mountain and say, I am Utah. <laughs> and while we have thanked him in person, the, the truth is that as an organization, we started receiving uh, refugees or Afghans before the Afghan refugees came in. So as soon as the evacuation um, and the troop withdrawal was completed on August 31st, within days we had returning citizens okay. from Afghanistan yeah. who were evacuated 
in ways where they did not have a chance to gather their belongings or gather, you know, themselves or even their full families. So, uh, you know, uh, that's when we sort of also realized that a lot of conversation around refugees in Utah was indicating this incoming 765, whereas we were already receiving. They might not be part of that refugee status, but they're yet Afghan community that's coming back here. And the idea that they did not qualify for full services, that they did not have those because they're citizens. Okay. So that was some of the first challenges that we saw. Second challenge for me personally was once again, you know, the outreach, the outpouring uh, was around asking the Afghan community to volunteer, to step up, to help the incoming refugees. And the lack of realization that every single Afghan present in Utah has their first relative stuck back home. Mm. People had their wives, their children, their parents stuck. And we needed to stop everything and check on them. Ask them, how are they doing? It's almost like if your house is on fire and you are being constantly asked saying, can you please help you know, translate? Can you please open up your home to house your community? There was some lack of understanding of what's going on. So as a community-based organization, this is what we did. We brought the existing community to speak about what were they facing and feeling. And we did that in partnership with World Trade Center. And I'm very thankful for their partnership because it amplified our voices. And that that meeting also made us understand that we needed to do stuff for the existing community and not only prepare for the incoming ones because we do have a wonderful setup in the state of Utah. The Refugee State Office provides amazing coordination in all these services. Um, and that entire conversation and examples of, uh, you know, folks outside that service area was the reason that the governor announced an Afghan community support fund on last Tuesday. Uh, it The fund will obviously supplement the needs that, uh, of the resettlement agencies. Uh, with such a large influx, they have additional needs, but it will also cover the grays of this entire community where, where people are not qualifying or there are Afghan groups here who are providing services. How do we um, do capacity building for them? How do we provide, we all we all know the housing crisis we're in. So, you know, once again, how do we structurally create places and, you know, housing options for these folks and so on. So in my experience, the community has had an overwhelming response, but a little bit of nuance needs to be made here, saying it's not specifically just that 765, it is much larger, and we have to look at the whole entire system of services and so on. Mm -hmm. Even as is, there are language barriers in the existing community. As is, there is a lack of understanding of how to get services and so on. And that is exactly the space where we are coming in. There's also a very big part of cultural competency. Uh, And the other part is every, every incoming Afghan has some sort of PTSD. They're coming from a very violent space. And 
mental health is not something that is looked upon, you know, kindly. Um, and then if it's not in their language or if it's not in their cultural context, uh, you know, we need interventions. Once again, through UMCL, those are the kind of services we're looking to bridge. We are not looking at creating more institutions. What we are looking at is providing training training to the service providers so that they're equipped with enough knowledge to know that if they do encounter uh, a refugee from Afghanistan, that these might be the signs they need to look out with, this might be the language they want to use, and so on, around domestic violence, around um, education, uh, like we, you and I have talked about, uh, in education sort of uh, arena, one in every third kid is bullied as a Muslim, right? Mm. And it shows that 70% of that comes from actually school administrators and teachers. Wow. So when, who is going to help you know, the school system understand these biases? How are we going to change these, provide trainings, provide understanding and a portrait of our community so that that othering can stop? Mm-hmm. So these are some of the, you know, um, what's it called, interventions that we're looking through, not only just through this fund, but as an organization. That's what we have been doing. Um, there are a lot of qualified uh, Afghans and refugees that exist in Utah you know, looking into policies where they can have their qualification, uh, I am forgetting the technical word, but interpreted or translated or uh, equilation certification or all of those processes so that they can be employed in proper jobs, that they don't have to really start from zero. If they're a doctor or a nurse, that there are other ways pathways through which they can have a better trajectory in their careers Mm -hmm. and so on. Said that, you know, a dentist from Syria does not have to drive a cab and that should not be the only option. So the entire, once again, economic development piece of refugees in the state of Utah, we have wonderful uh, people working on it. Um, We as UMCL want to constantly provide that cultural context and also provide data-driven uh, numerical uh, portrait of the misconceptions that are that exist about the community and so on. You know, just the idea that um, we are a certain way, um, we cannot work off, off of that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We have to inform and then work with them uh, to see. One of the uh, interventions that we are working on is around, it might be too soon to declare it, but very proud to say around athletic wear for uh, faith-based students and in sports in Utah. And, you know, how does diversity contribute to the growth of Utah? Um, How do we, once again, make it very normal for people to see different colors in their workspace and be accepting of that? Um, and vice versa, we also know when refugees come in, they need cultural contacts. And through the, us, they will learn in a much better way than somebody who will not speak their language. So a lot of bridge building is happening. And I, I once again feel the support that I get from my friends in Utah and so on. Um, I think we also have to allow space, especially in the Afghan um, 
uh, context, we have to allow space to them for a little bit of healing. Yeah. Right? Uh, I know everybody's eager to go help them. We need to channelize that help and we need to stagger it over a period of time that people don't burn out because this community is going to need help for a long time. Mm. So don't just think about, you know, clothes today, but also about mentoring them, taking their kids, you know, into spaces and into your lives in ways that helps them learn and helps them thrive and so on. And I think we also need to understand that resettlement process is one piece of this entire process. And if you don't create a sense of belonging, if you don't create a sense of, you know, happiness for these refugees, that's when displacement starts happening. You know, every refugee has, um, you know, some family in another state. We want them to stay in Utah. And for that, they're going to need their own people as well, which includes us. Uh, it is hard to use the word Muslim together with refugees as they're seen. Uh, it's two different identities. But unfortunately, in Utah, the refugees make up a large part. Muslims are a large part of that refugee population. And we have to understand that. And we once again have to normalize it and uh, accept it. Yeah. So these are some of my asks, thoughts and wants. Um, not sure if they're coherent. Yeah, no, they're perfect. I, I think I love what you're saying about, um, you know, our, our friend pa- Pamela Atkinson, who is wonderful and who's been Absolutely. on our podcast before. She talks about fits of charity around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. So maybe this translates into fits of charity around this influx of these particular refugees at this time. And um, I love the thought around making sure that this isn't just a fit of charity of, you know, can I give some money for them to get resettled right now and then forget about it? Um, I love thinking through ways of connecting with them. Um, and, and you talked about the the mental health piece I thought was really interesting. You mentioned they're all pretty much coming here with PTSD. Um, there's going to be some trauma uh, in in our work with our, our foster families, um, we talk about a f- trauma-informed approach and being trained <clears throat> on the trauma-informed approach. And I think with this community, it's going to be the same type of thing. We're going to have to be trauma-informed absolutely, and understand where they're coming from and to be able to the – other, the other thing I loved what you said about connecting with their kids, bringing their kids into your circles – Making sure that they're not feeling alienated. This is going to be, I mean, just, I just, in my brain, I'm trying to figure out, like, put my kids and myself in a position of going and having to leave and going somewhere that was completely different from anything I had ever experienced and how that would feel and how isolating that would feel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I, I am looking at this work as a marathon. This is not a sprint to get ahead. We have to pace ourselves and we have to look at every intersection that's going to come in and see where is our most influential self and where can I effect change? Um, You know, getting them from airports, yes, we need help over there. But then tomorrow, you know, when they have homeworks, when they have, you know, presentations and English not being their first languages, 
you know, women, uh, you know, who have young children, you know, will have to get jobs, will have to be incorporated into the larger system. And trauma-informed not only works in mental health, but around domestic violence, around so many of other uh, aspects of, uh, you know, your being. And um, fortunately, there are, let's say, faith-based, Islamic faith-based uh, interventions that have been developed all across the country. And it is our want not to recreate the cycle, but bring those resources to Utah mm. and, you know, make it very easy for the practitioners here to adopt them okay. instead of, like I said, reinventing constantly. Okay. Yeah. That's so amazing. So if somebody's um, right now thinking... You know, I do feel this and I'm, I'm watching what's happening and I want to help. What today is the best way and what is the best thing long term that that a person say, I, I, I've watched this. I my my heart's breaking for for the plight of our friends that are coming here. What can I do? What what would you say? Okay, don't laugh. First, I'm going to say contribute to the fund. Yes. Right? Which is exactly what I've been telling people because I asked Pamela and I said, Pamela, I'm ask- people are asking me, what do I say? And she said, right now we need funds um, either you know, in any of our organizations, but this fund that we just created last week or that, that we just announced last week mm-hmm. is what way. Yeah. It is because that fund was created with specific research, analysis. It's not that we're just asking for money. We're asking for money for specifics. And those we know are important. Second, obviously, is volunteering, but volunteering over a period of time, mm-hmm. not just all of it right now. So do adopt a family that you can mentor for a long time. Do think about foster parenting, you know, talk and you know, for that process of foster parenting, we need to include Muslims in it. We do not yes. have Muslim families. And that's something that I am going to be looking at you in helping me develop that pipeline and inform and make it very normal because we do have unaccompanied minors coming in. I wondered about that. And okay. it is going to be so important um, if our time is over that was exactly what I had in mind when I reached out to Kirsten okay. to influence, use your influence in that space. We need help. Okay. We want our faith leaders to feel support from the state and everyone so that they are able to um, carry on the message within the community confidently. Because there are, I have to understand, within the Muslim community, once again, there's a lot of um, different, let's say, different types, you know, Sunni Shias or different ethnic groups, you know, for example, Somalis don't know much about Afghans or Afghans don't know much about Somalis. So, but they all attend the same mosque. So we need to be allowed that space to once again, get to know each other within those congregations, because faith is going to be the first connecting point. I mean, community needs to feel supported enough to be able to reinvest in their own selves in many ways. And then perhaps we can go, you know, ripple by ripple to next community and the next community and so on. But I strongly feel 
there needs to be they need to be given some space to recover first. Oh, I love that. That's that's amazing. And I think um, when when we know better, we do better. And Absolutely. when we know how to help, we'll do it in a better way. Yeah. So I really appreciate this conversation. Um, Luna, this has just been delightful for me and, and really inspiring for me. And I know it will be for our listeners. So thank you again for all your work in this space and all the, all the ways you're serving in Utah. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. We're so grateful for Luna being here and having this conversation, this very important conversation today. We want to make sure you know the organizations that are working with our Afghani refugees. The new Utah Fund for Afghani Refugees is utahcf.org. International Rescue Committee, Catholic Community Services, Utah Muslim Civic League, and World Trade Center Utah. Thanks for being a friend.